0: The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story.
1: Besides our guest, I'm joined today by my co-host, Mary Jean Harris, my daughter. All right, Gina has a Master's of Physics, and we're going to talk about energy today. And in particular, we're going to talk about it with an energy expert. So let's get onto the show. Our society is based on the prevalence of reliable, plentiful energy. Yet environmental and left-wing activists have been trying to change the very foundation of our society's energy supply. This change is moving from fossil fuels to so-called renewable energy, such as wind and solar, Energy sources that we have seen are nowhere near sufficient to power our society.
2: You're right. It's become so entrenched in our media and education system that fossil fuels are bad, evil, in fact. Uh, Most people don't even realize how essential they are to our society's functioning. Mm, There's another energy source that hasn't been used to its full capacity, though, and that's nuclear power.
1: Yeah. And yet nuclear power has been denigrated by the left as well. But nuclear has the potential to provide clean, plentiful energy to our society. If we were ever to transition away from fossil fuels, wouldn't you say, Mary Jean, that nuclear would be the much more feasible option?
2: Yeah, we definitely sound like it. We definitely need to learn more about nuclear power to see what it can bring to our society. Rather than labeling certain energy sources as bad or evil, we should explore what they can actually provide us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And our guest today, John Shanahan, he's had a career in nuclear power and he will discuss all these topics with us. So it's a crucially important interview for people to hear. And, you know, we get about 50,000 listeners to our program, Mary Jean. So this will be a good education for many people who are not that familiar with nuclear. So, can you introduce John to our audience?
2: Yes, for sure. So, John Shanahan is a civil engineer with a career in nuclear power in the United States and Switzerland. He has bachelor's and master's degrees from the United States and a doctorate of engineering from Germany. After 25 years in commercial nuclear power and environmental cleanup, he dedicated the next 25 plus years to his website, allaboutenergy.net, getting to know experts and studying topics in a variety of fields related to energy, the environment, and politics. He works with an international advisors in 21 countries, and other close associates to interest and educate students, parents, teachers, professors, professionals, and technicians in many fields, as well as leaders in business and government.
1: Well, we're lucky to have someone like this on. So should I call you Dr. Shanahan, or should I call you
3: John? John is just fine, Tom. Thank you very much. Okay, well,
1: thanks for being a guest on our show. Gene, right, you've done a lot of research on this, so why don't you start out at the questions for John?
2: Yeah, for sure. So we'll get right into the stuff with nuclear energy. Uh, Based on your career in nuclear energy, could you tell us a bit more about how nuclear power compares with fossil fuels and providing energy to our society? You talk about advantages or disadvantages. would be great.
3: Well, thank you, Tom and Mary Jean. Hello, friends and colleagues of Tom Harris and John Shanahan in North America, Europe, the Middle East, South Africa, Chile, India, and Australia. Fossil fuels created the modern world over the last 200 years. They provide electricity vital for communications, lighting, computers, control systems, and electric motors. Fossil fuels provide energy for small batteries, for hearing aids, and heart pacemakers. They enable the internet and cell phones. Fossil fuels provide energy for mining, heavy industry, transportation, heating, air conditioning, refrigeration, and agriculture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They provide byproducts for nearly everything in the modern world, from asphalt highways to asphalt roofs, clothing, furniture, carpets, sports equipment, and fertilizers to produce food.
1: Yeah, for sure.
3: It is very disappointing that so many politicians, teachers, extremist organizations, one world government organizations, and many of my close friends demand that we stop using fossil fuels. Your power will replace fossil fuels in the long term for generating electricity, providing energy to manufacture synthetic hydrocarbon fuels and byproducts for thousands of years.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Fuel for nuclear power produces less environmental disturbance than extracting coal, oil, and natural gas.
1: Yeah, now that's something maybe we can drill into a little bit more, if you excuse the pun. Uh, less environmental disturbance. So when you add it all up, when you look at the net result of nuclear power, you're saying there is less environmental impact than all of the fossil fuels.
3: Yeah, that's right, Tom. Question for our audience. How many people know that there is enough uranium and thorium nuclear fuel on Earth, not on the moon, to meet the world's energy needs for as long as our sun will support life on Earth?
1: Wow. Wow. That's that's pretty awesome. And that's because, of course, it's so energy dense in comparison with every other energy source, I guess.
3: Yes, it's energy dense and it's plentiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, that The key word there, uh, plentiful nuclear fuel, means that we will have nuclear fuel for all the world's needs, as I say, for as long as the sun permits life on Earth.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I often hear, John, from environmental activists is that the radioactive waste is dangerous for millions of years. But I mean, isn't that a little deceptive? Because I understand... The low-level waste, you know, takes millions of years to decay, but the high-level waste really decays pretty fast, doesn't it?
3: Yes, it is certainly deceptive, and uh, the anti-nuclear people have been very successful in misleading the public and politicians. What Mm -hmm. actually happens, Tom, is that uh, in today's commercial reactors, which uh, have about 4% Enrichment and the uh, fissile material that comes out of the ground is about 1% of the uranium ore. And uh, two things happen when the fuel is in the reactors. Uh, a neutron hits the uranium U-235 and it fissions, which means that it, it splits into smaller atoms. Mm-hmm. That are very radioactive. And uh, it's these radioactive a- atoms being very radioactive means that their radioactivity does not last for a long time. On the other hand, uh, the U 238, which is uranium 238, which is plentiful in the nuclear fuel, is also can absorb a neutron and it becomes uh, plutonium. Uh,
4: 239.
3: Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, a, there's a very small amount of it, because it just doesn't happen easily in the commercial reactors. But mm-hmm. it is present. And it has very damaging radiation. But because the radioactivity is very low intensity, it means that the plutonium atom will stay radioactive for a very long time. So the plutonium that is in uh, today's fuel, that is generated in today's fuel, will remain for a very long time. And the anti-nuclear activists want us to store that for millions of years. Mm -hmm. It's interesting,
1: John. I had a thermodynamics professor at Carleton University, you might've known him, he was a nuclear expert. His name was Terry Rogers. And uh, he told us that with the can-do reactor that you could hold a used can-do reactor in your hands after only 400 years, because the high level waste had decayed sufficiently by then. I mean, it sounds to me like holding that in storage for four centuries, when you consider in the case of deep geologic storage, how long those rock formations are stable. I mean, that's very doable, isn't it?
3: Well, I'm not sure exactly what your professor meant by that. But uh, what I understand, Tom, is that the spent fuel from the Candu reactors and the spent fuel from the light water reactors is essentially uh, very similar. Mm-hmm. and And what that means is that the uh, radiation from any plutonium that is present in either the KANDU reactors or the light water reactors, that that radiation can be stopped by very simple shielding. Oh, I see. So if you put KANDU uh, spent fuel, radioactive fuel, or fuel from light water reactors, uh, if you put the plutonium specifically in your hand, that will be shielded by a few layers of paper or oh. a rubber glove.
1: Oh, is that right?
3: Yeah, wow. and, but both the do reactors and the light water reactors will have fission products, smaller atoms that are very radioactive and their uh, radiation is more penetrating. So, oh, I- okay. So uh, the bottom line is that the best thing to do with the Kandu reactor and light water reactor fuels is to reprocess the fuels and remove, uh, separate the fission products, the smaller atoms, from the plutonium. Oh, I see. And the French, very cleverly, at a, a facility called Le Hague in Normandy, they reprocess use nuclear fuel, and separate the plutonium from the fission products. And they put the fission products in oil drums, a metal drum the size of an oil drum. Oh, yeah. It's uh, then put into a a big hall about the four times the size of a professional basketball court or college basketball court. Uh And uh, so you've got a wood floor that has circles in it, And those circles have cylinders going down about 50 feet, and they simply lower the drums with the highly radioactive waste, the fission products, into those cylinders and put the floor back in place. And all they have to do is leave it there for about 500 years, as you've said. And Ted Rockwell, an American nuclear engineer, was being interviewed by Congress, giving testimony about his visit to uh, this French reprocessing center in La Hague. And he was saying that an American senator was over there at La Hague, and he asked the French engineers, "What do you do when all the cylinders in this floor are filled up?" Uh huh. And and the French engineers very demurely and politely said, we build another building. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. That makes sense. It's that simple instead of having uh, 50 years of study in Yucca Mountain or any of the other places that would be used for storing spent nuclear fuel that contains the plutonium.
1: So that's safe enough in your opinion?
3: Uh, The French process is absolutely safe enough. And there are three things that you get when you take the fuel out of a reactor that's been in the reactor for five years. So you get three things. You get plutonium-238, which is non-radioactive, but it is fissile. It can absorb a proton and become 230, not plutonium-239 and give off nuclear energy. Right. You get the plutonium transuranium atoms, which are fissile, and can be used for nuclear fuel. Mm -hmm. And and thirdly, you get the radiation fission products, which are smaller atoms, Mm -hmm. okay? So you can call those fission products either radioactive waste, or you can separate them one by one by chemical element and use them as radioisotopes in nuclear medicine and nuclear technology. Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: Now, I'm particularly interested in this idea that you can reuse the plutonium in the waste. In, can you you use it again in a nuclear reactor?
3: Exactly. And you can use the uranium-238, which is inert, mm-hmm. which is being thrown away in the spent fuel as feed material to become plutonium-239 in fast reactors and mm-hmm. use that Get that fission energy.
1: Yeah. So, are the French actually doing that? Are they using the plutonium for energy?
3: Um, they they are taking spent fuel from reactors all over the world and separating the U two thirty eight, which is inert, the plutonium two thirty nine, which is fissile and is nuclear energy, and the fission products, which either can be put in those barrels and put in the floor or they can have further processing to be made into radioisotopes for nuclear medicine and nuclear technology. And I would like to draw your attention to the fact that, presented by Alan Walter, past president of American Nuclear Society, that the economic value of nuclear medicine and nuclear technology is far more than the economic value today of nuclear power. Hmm. Wow. That's very little known. It's very exciting.
1: Yeah. I understand Canada actually is an exporter of that technology as well.
3: Oh, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: The Canadian uh, Can-Do reactor is a very clever and it, a very competently designed technology because Canada, as you may remember, didn't have uranium enrichment and they didn't have access to it. So mm-hmm. they had to develop a nuclear technology where they use the same uranium ore, but do not enrich it.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: are the light water reactors needed enrichment to 4%, but the can-do reactors can work with the uranium ore that only has uh, less than 1% U-235, which is fissile.
1: Yeah. Is that because we use heavy water as a moderator?
3: Yes. Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing that uh, is very impressive to us in the United States is that the CANDU reactors do not need to turn off power to refuel. The mm. American reactors, light water reactors, have to shut down uh, for refueling. So Canadian reactors have continuous power.
1: Mm. Is there any chance of Americans spying Canadian CANDUs?
3: Well, there you get into uh, commercial competition
4: right <laughs> and
3: um uh, the uh, the thing about the canadian reactors is they need the heavy water which is a heavy isotope of hydrogen which yeah. is plentiful enough to operate but you can't use it in in massive quantities like the light water reactors are being used and oh. by the way the light water reactor is simply a reference to that water molecule the a hydrogen atom in its most common isotopic form, and the Canadians are using uh, the hydrogen in its much less frequent form uh, mm-hmm. with an extra neutron. Anyway, both the Canadian and the light water reactor technologies are phenomenal, and the experts that created them deserve a lot of credit. Yeah, yeah.
1: Just just before you go back to you, Mary Jean, I, w- I was also wondering, is there a limited supply of heavy water? Is that the reason that they're not? Yes. Well,
3: it's, it's, um, it's in all of the ocean water, but yeah. it's in the ocean water in very small percentages compared to uh, ordinary uh, water molecules.
1: So you got to actually process the water to get it concentrated. That's
3: exact, yeah, right.
1: Yeah, I see. By the heard? way,
3: that was an issue back in World War Two with why the Germans wanted to get to Norway mm. because the Norwegians were uh, processing heavy water, and the Germans wanted it for their development of the nuclear bomb.
4: Right,
1: right, yeah,
2: hmm. yeah. Moving on to uh, next question, just sort of continuing with nuclear power. Uh, what do you think is a reasonable time frame for introducing nuclear power? as the primary source of power generation if our society does want to go that route?
3: Mary Jean, this is one of the most important questions to have a good answer for. And the nuclear professionals have two answers. The optimistic nuclear professionals say that we can be producing electricity from nuclear power plants for the whole world in 50 to 150 years. and other nuclear professionals, including myself, think it will take a lot longer. And there are many reasons for this. First of all, tremendous opposition has been drilled into people's thinking against today's nuclear power and advanced nuclear power technologies.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Changes in government policies, public thinking must be made. This will take a long time.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Another reason is that developing, licensing, operating, maintaining, and decommissioning nuclear power are more complicated than for fossil fuels. Another reason is that you can put fossil fuel power plants in any country, no matter how good their economy or their government is, but in reality nuclear power requires good government, stable economies, and specialized regional industries. And in my experience, the tiny country of Switzerland is an excellent example of a country that has good government, stable economy, and very specialized regional industries to support their nuclear power plants. And I lived that in Switzerland for five years in the 1980s when I was working with Swiss power plants.
1: So you couldn't just go to Nigeria and build a nuclear station and expect it to be safely operated effectively?
3: Uh, right. You, you'd have to uh, anticipate there would be more likelihood of terrorism, regional wars, and certainly uh, you have no access to all the wonderful companies that Switzerland has for supporting all of the parts of the nuclear power plant that aren't the nuclear reactor itself. Mm -hmm. And Switzerland people have been trained in depth at operating and maintaining the nuclear reactor. That's all missing in many countries of the world. One exception is the country of South Africa, which has been operating a nuclear power plant and a research reactor for radioisotopes for close to 50 years. And their experts are as supreme, superb as the experts in Switzerland. And Mm -hmm. that's been a real learning experience for me compared to my knowledge of uh, the experts we have here in North America and Canada and the United States. But Mm -hmm. South Africa is very special to me because they represent all the countries of the world outside of North America, Europe, India, and China, and Russia. Uh, South Africa represents the challenges that all the other countries have, and they have excellent nuclear experts, and they are working very hard to bring nuclear power as soon as possible to the rest of Africa. mm mm-hmm. So we need to support South Africa and give them a lot of respect rather than lecturing to them and has how they should do it.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Now you touched on terrorism. That's an interesting question. How susceptible to terrorism is, let's say the French storage in barrels under a floor? I mean, some people would say, oh, well, geez, you know, the plutonium is a potential raw material for weapons. So how, how likely is it to be stolen and used to make weapons for terrorists?
3: Well, that's a very good question, Tom. And if you remember, I said that those barrels that are being put in the floor only contain fission products, which means fission product means atoms smaller than uranium. Mm -hmm. And those radioactive elements can't be used at all to make nuclear bombs. They can, Mm -hmm. the only thing they can do with that is take it away and, in the maximum fantasy, distribute it around to scare people. But Mm -hmm. guess what? At The Hague, all of that processing is done by remote machines. Mm -hmm. So how is a terrorist going to get into the, the facility and take out the radioactive barrels of fission products only and drive away with it. They have no shielding, They've nothing. It's absolutely impossible to cause a problem with that stuff. On the other hand, uh, spent nuclear fuel from light water reactors contains uh, all the ingredients, theoretically, for a nuclear bomb. It contains U-238, which is Fertile can be turned into plutonium, it contains plutonium, and those elements theoretically could be turned into a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. But we have a principle that all of nature and most of humanity follow, and only the people that support wind and solar don't follow, and that's the principle of least work, Mm -hmm. which means nature and humans will take the path of least work to do something. Mm -hmm. Do you understand that?
1: Yeah, they'd like to anyway.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. What it means is in the wonder of nature, that processes of nature uh, take a process that requires the least amount of energy to do the work. They do the least amount of work. And what it means in uh, for human beings is that we take the course to do the least amount of work. And this applies to doing a search in a library. It applies to uh, operations in medicine. We, we take the, the simplest work path. And so what does that mean for robbing spent fuel from light water reactors? What it means is if they rob fuel from light water reactors to make bombs, that is many, many times more complex and costly to make the bomb material than to use well-known processes to make the bomb material. So the idea that we have a big threat from spent nuclear fuel is is just pure baloney.
1: Yeah. So it's sort of like you're climbing Mount Everest to get a knife at the top of the mountain when you might as well just get one down at the at the base. <laughs> yeah,
3: exactly. Exactly.
4: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. We have to go for a break now. But after the break, I'm hoping we can talk about the whole idea that nuclear, some nuclear advocates use to sell nuclear. And that is the idea that we can stop climate change. Can we talk about that after the break, John and Mary Jean?
3: Sure, Tom and Mary Jean. I look forward to it.
1: It's okay. great talking with you. Yeah, well, we'll be right back after the break with John Shanahan, an expert in nuclear, and of course, my co-host, Mary Jean. Here we go.
0: We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it.
1: Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces.
0: With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything.
2: You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe. Air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill. No drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X L E A R.com.
1: For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America Climate Plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. So we're back with John Shanahan, a civil engineer with a career in nuclear power in the United States and Switzerland. He's a bachelor and master's degree from the United States and a doctorate of engineering from Germany. So, John, it's great to have you on the show.
2: Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. So, we're going to continue our discussion and let's talk a bit about the environmental impacts of nuclear power and how these can be overcome, and also the concerns that people have about climate change and nuclear power.
3: Thank you, Mary Jean. Two great questions. They are quite different. And so, I'm going to talk about them very separately. And let's talk about climate change itself first, and then we'll talk about the environmental impacts of nuclear power after that. So what is climate change? It's been talked about for 50 years, and we have one camp that says that the world is coming to an end due to extreme heat in just 10 or 15 years, and that's been promised every year for the last 50 years, and the target keeps moving and what do they mean by that? Well, I happen to be uh, have been introduced to one of the leaders of this campaign, this is a global warming alarmism, in 1970, when I was just starting my nuclear power career in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was introduced through family members to their friend, John Holdren, Dr. John yeah. Holdren who was a, a nuclear physicist a PhD from Stanford University. So John Holdren became a friend of mine because he, he and his wife were good friends of other members of our family. And we got to know each other on personal basis uh, through the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And he and his wife, Cheryl, visited us at our home in Switzerland in the 1980s. So we had a cordial friendship and everything was going good. And in fact, I got tired of waiting for answers to questions I had that I had given to other scientists. And so in the late 1990s, I sent an email to John Holder and told him, I said, John, I have these questions about nuclear energy and about energy in general. I had asked many other scientists for 20 years what their thoughts were. And as again, I'm asking these questions because I'm a civil engineer and don't uh, have the training to answer them myself. So I asked these questions to John Holdren and he immediately wrote back and gave me his opinion about these questions, which from my background as a civil engineer, I said, the answers have to be these. John Holdren said they were the same. And many famous uh, scientists had flip-flopped on the answers for 20 years.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but what were the questions about?
3: Oh, okay. Uh, the questions were very simple. Everybody can understand them. It's not complicated. But the getting to the answers was complicated. I got these questions as I went home from work from the Swiss nuclear power plant in Switzerland for five years. I kept looking at the Swiss nuclear power plants and the power lines coming off of the power plant. And I said, the electricity coming from that power plant is nuclear power. We know it's a nuclear reactor. Then I imagined two other power plants, a coal-fired power plant with electric lines coming off transmission lines, and a hydroelectric plant with electric lines coming off, going to the city. Mm -hmm. And I, Tom, what I said to myself is, is the electricity coming off from those three different power plants, nuclear, fossil fuels, and hydro, is that electricity coming from the same nuclear source of fissioning Mm -hmm. or fusing uh, atoms? Mm -hmm. And of course, When I asked that question to a lot of physics professors and chemistry professors, they scoffed at the question saying, that's a dumb question. Of course not. It's coming from burning fossil fuels and it's coming from water falling down a penstock. But I said to myself, the electricity must ultimately be coming from a nuclear fission event or a fusion event. Yeah, from the sun. You say, you know, you would think so. And that goes back to my doctoral study in structural mechanics of principle of invariance. If you look at a process, many of the processes should be invariant. In other words, they should have the same answer. And so I reasoned on my own and I asked John Holden and I didn't tell him my answer. But I said, is uh, the electricity generated from a nuclear power plant, from fossil fuel power plant and hydroelectric generating station, is that all really coming from the original source of nuclear power? John Holden wrote back, yes. And uh, so we were good friends up to that point in 2000. And then 2009 came. What happened in 2009? President Barack Obama was elected president, and he selected John Holdren as his science advisor.
4: Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah, right.
3: (laughs) And the two of them began a campaign of destruction of sound engineering principles and in sound environmental principles by mandating the canceling of fossil fuels. And John Holdren was specifically for the last 20 years involved in canceling of advanced nuclear power reactors. I've talked to all the engineers that worked on that in the United States, and they told me about meetings in closed door rooms with John Holdren, where he explained to them how he was going to get rid of advanced nuclear power, and he did. Oh, wow. And uh, so when uh, Barack Obama selected John Holdern as his science advisor and the two of them began their war against fossil fuels and nuclear power, I formed a letter in January 2010 that was addressed to John Holdren in his official office in Washington yeah. recommending uh, three things. That they continue support for commercial nuclear power from the CANDU reactors and the light water reactors, uh, recommending that they promote uh, support the advanced fast neutron reactors that were being developed in Washington state in Idaho.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, thirdly, recommending that they support American production, Canadian production of radioisotopes for nuclear medicine. Well, John Holden, surprisingly, because he knew me, answered me in a formal letter only four weeks later, and he gave answers that danced around saying no, but he he was clearly saying no, even though he was apparently saying yes, ho-hum.
1: Why were they against advanced nuclear?
3: Well, the complete answer, Tom, is that they are against Obama-Biden- Holden and Kerry, those four people to name uh, some key characters, are against plentiful energy for supporting a world population of 8 billion people. They, They want to have the world not have the energy that enabled the population to grow from 1 billion to 8 billion in 200 years and not have that energy to last for all the time that people will be able to live on the planet Earth where the sun is behaving and enables life on Earth. So basically, that's what they want. But they hide that in lies. They hide that in misrepresentations, claiming that fast neutron reactors produce potential nuclear bombs for the mm. terrorists can walk away with. It's absolutely impossible for them to do that. But yeah. that's what they cage it in, in order to promote their long-term goals of reducing world's population and enabling organizations like the World Economic Forum to rule the world.
4: Uh,
1: I'm kind of astounded by this John, why is it that they don't want to have the world population at the level it is? I mean, are they trying to get us back to a billion people?
3: Yes, Tom, uh, that's the the actual answer. And um, it has one very clear source. Mm-hmm. As you remember, I said that John Holdren got his Ph.D. in plasma physics from Stanford University.
4: Yeah, that's right.
3: Something else happened while John Holden was at Stanford. There's a professor of biology at Stanford University uh, named Paul Ehrlich, and he wrote the book in the 1960s called Population Bomb.
4: Oh, wow. Yeah.
3: (laughs) And that uh, became the Bible of anti-population, anti-people, the population bomb. And guess who was... Paul Ehrlich's closest young protégé friend. It was John Holdren (laughs) Uh and and John Holdren's wife, Sherry. Sherry got a PhD in biology under Paul Ehrlich, studying the sex life of butterflies here in Colorado, Uh you know, biological aspects of it. Anyway, John Holdren and Paul Ehrlich became fast buddies In words that you and I would use uh, beer drinking buddies, but I'm sure that was not the case with them. And so John Holdren, back in the late 1960s, became also an advocate of cutting back the population. So the idea of cutting back the population has two sources. The false ideas of Malthus and Paul Ehrlich that says that the world shouldn't have more people then up to about 1,800, and that maximum number was 1 billion people. And uh, so John Holdren wanted, from the 1960s on, the population to stay low. So he became an alarmist against advanced nuclear power and against fossil fuels because they enable the world to support 8 billion, 10 billion, 12 billion people Mm -hmm. And they enable those 12 million people to have a wonderful life. Mm -hmm. And they were simply against that. And furthermore, along comes the World Economic Forum. And they want their leaders in the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, to rule over the surviving people while retaining their own wealth.
4: Mm -hmm. And they
3: claim that that's going to be good for the world. Well, huh? It's far from that.
1: Just, just, I had a couple of quick questions on that. Is this because they are concerned about environmental destruction, or is it because a billion people would be a lot easier to control than 10 billion?
3: Well, they simply don't want 10 billion people to have good lives. Uh huh. It has nothing to do with protecting the environment because, Tom, as you and Mary Jean and I all know, that the environment today is much better off than it was at the time of Christ. At the time of Christ, in the Mediterranean, they were stripping trees from islands off the Dalmatian coast of present-day Croatia to build ships. And then, of course, that happened with uh, shipbuilding in the 14 to 1800s before steamships and Mm -hmm. steel ships. So the environment was being plundered by those 1 billion people without fossil fuels. And when fossil fuels uh, came along and uh, ultimately nuclear energy uh, having the same potential impact or benefit, the plundering of the environment literally stopped overnight.
1: Hmm. I understand that England, for example, had just about denuded the whole island of trees before coal came.
3: Yes, and I think personally of my visits on bicycle tours in the last 15 years to Ireland and Croatia, where we were on terrain in Ireland and in Croatia where the trees had been stripped. And guess what happens when you strip the the trees? Mm, The soil washes away. Yeah, you get landslides. Yeah, and so, well, when the soil washes away the only thing that's left is bare rock and nothing grows there. And so that happened all over the place for the last uh, 3,000 years for building ships and uh, for using wood for firewood. Uh And when fossil fuels came along, that stopped, lives got better for people. And very frankly, I claim that John Kerry John Holder, and Barack Obama, and Joe Biden, among others, don't want people to have a good life, and they really aren't concerned about the benefits of fossil fuels for the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, I have two
1: questions that come to mind. One is, is this why they promote wind and solar power, because they cannot give us the dependable, reliable power to expand our population?
3: Well, yes, because if they recommend wind and solar power, they know it's a dead end. Once again, they are living a lie. Wind and solar require much more mining to get the elements that have to go in to the solar panels and into the magnets of o- the numerous electric generators in those uh, individual wind towers,
0: mm-hmm. and
3: that mining causes a lot of pollution. And worst of all, in my view, is they're taking those precious minerals and putting them in wasteful wind and wind turbines and solar panels instead of into actual products that we really need.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: The, so, the other question I had is don't they recognize or do they care? about the fact that this would cause mass death, mega death, billions of people dying if we actually are not able to use the nuclear and fossil fuel power that got us to 8 billion in the first place.
3: I believe uh, that they want that mass death. Mm. And furthermore, while we're on the subject, I want to point a finger at a civil engineering colleague of mine once again at Stanford University. He's a professor in the civil engineering department. And uh, he is totally telling the world that wind and solar can power the whole world. And as you've said, Tom, that's not true. Wind and solar can only provide intermittent unreliable electricity. Mm -hmm. But For 80% of the energy we need Wind and solar can do absolutely nothing. They can't operate mines. They can't operate transportation. They can't uh, build cities and they can't build infrastructure. They cannot do that that. in any way.
1: And they can't make all those products either.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and and all of the marvelous byproducts of uh, hydrocarbons. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: So this professor at Stanford University, so now we've got three real characters at Stanford University, uh, Paul Ehrlich, John Holdren, and now the civil engineer at Stanford University, Mark Jacobson. Jacobson is responsible for a campaign promising the world that we can live all our energy needs with wind and solar. And he hangs up the phone on me. He hates me. So I have got three people there that hate me.
1: Wow. (laughs) That's terrible. So over to you, Mary-Jean.
2: Yeah. Well, just to end off, uh, we thought we'd mention about your website, AllAboutEnergy.net. You have a lot of great resources for energy, climate and the environment. Could you tell us a bit more about the website and the experts you've worked with and also the motivation for creating the website?
3: Sure, Mary-Jean. Well, the idea for this website was born in January 2010, that I wrote this letter to John Holdren in his office in Washington, D.C. And that letter was edited by scientists at Argonne National Laboratory for technical accuracy. And I got a lot of help in collecting signatures for that letter from a variety of people so that I ended up with the signatures on that letter, including the top nuclear scientist in India and very notably the top nuclear scientist in Russia, Evgeny Mm Velikov. And so the letter to John Holdern was very competently worded. It had my wishes in it, and then the competent wording came from scientists at Argonne and it was backed by the people from, I think, 20 countries. And uh, it, it went off to Holden and Holden responded, as I indicated. So something else, once again, I consider it a tremendous coincidence or uh, miraculous. And that is at the same time of the John Holden letter, I received a call from a high school classmate who was one of the top aviators in the uh, nation, the co- He uh, worked for the FAA, uh, literally qualifying all aircraft, commercial aircraft, to give them license to fly into the United States. He's a graduate of the first class of the Air Force Academy, a combat pilot and then an aviation expert. And he called me in November of 2009, completely independent of everything else. And he said, John, my granddaughter is being self-schooled. And she's on the debate team. And every year, these debate teams, which are nationwide, are given a topic to debate. And they must take both sides in different debates. But the topic for this freshman in high school, young woman, was uh, what to recommend to the president to improve protection of the environment. And this young woman from Augusta, Georgia, on her own, with the help of her mother, opted to recommend nuclear power. Mm-hmm. And so my high school classmate asked me to help, and I told them that I told uh, them that I was working on this letter to John Holder, and if they were interested, that I could introduce them to all these experts uh, that know more than I do. And so we did that. And uh, this young high school student for three years wrote tremendous essays. First of all, in the next two years, she came in in the top 10% of the debaters nationwide, Mm -hmm. defending why nuclear power was good for the environment. And uh, I was most impressed with her knowledge, her ability to learn, and her ability to debate was tremendous. Mm -hmm. And so because of that young woman, we suggested we work together. Well, let's have a website to explain nuclear power. That was how the idea got started. And the first website was called Go Nuclear. And Mm -hmm. uh, as that got going, a very well-known nuclear engineer in France needed a person to head up his organization in the United States, and that was in 2011. And his name is Bruno Combe in Paris, and he called me and asked me if I would start a website called Environment for Nuclear-USA. Uh, he had already got the website specifically for the world but he wanted uh, country-specific websites. And Mm -hmm. I told him, Tom and Mary Jean, I said, I'd be glad to do that on one condition, and that is, this was 2011. I said, on the condition that we don't argue against fossil fuels and claim that carbon dioxide is going to cause catastrophic global warming. Yeah. my friend Bruno Combi in Paris, uh, he was among the people that believed that carbon dioxide was causing catastrophic global warming and that our nuclear should be argued as a solution to fossil fuels. And I said, I wouldn't do that. He thought about it for two years and said, OK, I'll agree to you. I'll support your position or allow you to have that position on your website, for Nuclear USA. And so I started a second website. I essentially migrated the content from Go Nuclear to Environmentalist for Nuclear USA. And that got me going global. Mm-hmm. And I worked with Bruno Combi, really enjoyed him. He's a fine individual, he's a, an excellent engineer, but he believes that carbon dioxide from fossil fuels is causing catastrophic global warming. And I mm-hmm. said, well, that's limiting me from what I want to do. So I will resign from that and just have my own organization where I support fossil fuels and nuclear power and all their tremendous byproducts, et cetera. And that website, uh, the content of Environmentals for Nuclear USA was then migrated to the new website, allaboutenergy.net.
1: You know, John, I think that the nuclear industry, some of them, like the World Nuclear Association, who promote the climate scare as a reason to move to nuclear. It strikes me that they're shooting themselves in the foot because, I mean, eventually I think the climate scare will be seen as being a hoax. And that would surely hurt the nuclear industry if they put all their eggs in that basket. We actually wrote a letter to John Rich when he was the head of the World Nuclear Association out of London, England. And his climate change advisor, who actually worked for the Nuclear Association, sent us back a letter saying no, they were going to continue using climate change to sell nuclear and I mean, or words to that effect. So I mean, do you think that's a strategic error?
3: Oh, it's definitely a strategic error. And we just like to point out that John Rich uh, signed my letter to John Holden. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but that is my biggest concern about some nuclear experts that they are using the global warming and controlling climate argument, which is completely wrong scientifically. It's mm-hmm. my complaint that our nuclear experts and the nuclear advocates are using claims that nuclear can control Earth's temperature. Well, <laughs> it, yeah. it, scientifically, it doesn't do that. And secondly, yeah. those nuclear experts are making two other mistakes that show ignorance that raises a question of weakening arguments for nuclear power. First of all, they say that nuclear power can be implemented 100% around the world in 50 or 150 years for Mm -hmm. producing electricity. Well, it's gonna take longer as we will talk about later. But secondly, the other big blind spot in their arguments is that electricity is only 20% of our total energy use.
1: Oh, right, of
3: course. Fossil fuels uh, provide energy for 80% of other applications that nuclear can't help with, except if they manufacture synthetic hydrocarbons. Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Sadly, we have to wrap up now. (laughs) Will you come back on to continue this conversation sometime in the future?
3: I look forward to it. I enjoy it very much. And I'm glad to know you. I followed your work for the last 10 years and oh. followed the work of your colleague, uh, Dr. Jay Layer. And it's yeah. very nice to meet, meet Mary Jean Harris, a scientific consultant working with you.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, we have to sign out. And yeah, thank you, Mary Jean, for being my co-host. Our guest today has been John Shanahan, a civil engineer with a career in nuclear power in the United States and Switzerland, and I would direct people to his website that we'll include uh, under the podcast, It's all about allaboutenergy.net. And John, on that website, do you have articles talking about this business of population control?
3: Not yet. We're very aware of it, but um, we have skirted that so far, but we will approach that topic as we move forward
1: yeah that's so important to understand the motivation behind a lot of this push to wind and solar power and try to reduce the population my god this is awful okay well this is tom harris my co-host mary Jean harris signing out from the other side of the story